The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI, as they said. As they said, at 88.9 FM in Irvine, this is Claudia Shambaugh, your host on Ask a Leader. Last week, we heard about medicine amidst disaster. Today on Ask a Leader, we turn the tables toward catastrophe on an individual basis where trauma or pathology strikes the nervous system. With me here in Studio A are my guest professors Eileen Anderson and Brian Cummings, who will talk about their work on stem cell research at UC Irvine. Um, and uh, with them, we'll explore science, the funding, and what we can reasonably expect to come from all of this. And then we'll, we'll do that after this little break. Good morning. As promised, we have such the program today. And today, I dedicate this show to the memory of one Mary Anderson who had an inkling that my two guests were on a solid path toward contributing mightily to neuroscience. She set the bar high for her daughter, Eileen Anderson, equipping her with, to meet the demands in a high-stake science career. She had comparable plans for her prized two granddaughters, but unfortunately with her passing a year ago, her tutelage came to an untimely end. Eileen Anderson, my first guest, is a professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation, anatomy, and neurobiology at University of California, Irvine. The role of inflammatory mechanisms in degeneration and regeneration, she's going to whittle this into speech that we can understand. And also, my guest, uh, Brian Cummings, is also a professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation anatomy and neurobiology at the University of California to better understand the effect of immuno immunosuppressive agents on stem cell proliferation in the central syst nervous system. We're going to have them both give us that in speech we can all understand as we emerge from the cave. But uh, in addition, um, they, I want to say their background. They, they've been with us here at UCI for the last 14 years. Uh, they were previously had a stint as graduate students here. Stanford wanted them badly. We wanted them badder. When they're not finishing off the next grant application or conducting spinal surgery on mice, they pick up their precision tools at their workshop, they maintain their black belts in Taekwondo, and frankly, there isn't one dendrite in their five-year-old I haven't seen them activate on a round-the-clock basis. Brian and Eileen, welcome to Ask a Leader. Thanks for having us, Claudia. It's <laughs> Thank you. That was a very lovely introduction. Well, I... I tried to put a little effort in that because I worked hard to get you two here. They were, I've been wanting them so many times, but to have this kind of, uh, if these two were attorneys in billable hours, this is an over $800 show, folks. So I love this and love the fact that we have them both in the same place on the microphone. Well, um, last year, both Eileen Anderson and Brian Cummings received, let's see, uh, one uh, $1.7 million grant uh, and an early translation award of $1.4 million to explore the utility of using neural stem cells to treat traumatic brain injury. Um, there, this traumatic brain injury devastates over a million Americans per year and is considered a major risk for Alzheimer's disease. 
this uh, being funded, and we'll talk more about the California Institute for Regenerative, Regenerative Medicine in a bit. Um, in the simplest terms, you two, for the lay public, what is it that you're trying to accomplish? Well, we really have um, a couple of different research programs in the lab. Um, with stem cells, it focuses on two things. First, on spinal cord injury, and second, in um, Brian's lab, on traumatic brain injury. So I'll let him talk about that. In terms of spinal cord injury, we've been investigating principally human uh, fetal-derived neural stem cells and the potential of those cells to um, yield repair after injury. So we investigate that in animal models, and we look at how the environment that we transplant those cells into influences them, how those cells listen to the environment that they see, and what that means in terms of what they decide to become, and whether or not they can affect repair. So some of our work has contributed to um, the preclinical safety package for uh, our collaborators at Stem Cells, Inc. We have a clinical trial with them that's going forward in Switzerland right we'll now. Get that. We'll get to that. Don't rush ahead of us. We've all right. We've got to lay the ground, because as I've, I've pronounced us, we are many of us all coming out of the cave with the kind of precision that the two of you have taken up in your labs and with your uh, symposiums and with your workshops and your graduate students, all in that order. Brian, you wanted to add something to that, too. Uh, well, I just would point out that uh, what's not obvious is we're doing work that uh, is aimed towards clinical therapies, but there's a whole lot of work that is behind the scenes and what we call basic biology. So if you don't understand the basic biology of stem cells or you don't understand um, what happens after traumatic brain injury or after spinal cord injury, what's actually happening in the tissue, if you rush ahead to a therapy without understanding the basic biology, a lot of times uh, that therapy will end up not working. Okay. So, folks, while we're busy doing our, you know, our thing, this kind of precision work, Brian and Eileen are taking up because it's just like with the disaster medicine people. None of us are keeping track of the disasters out there, but you know somebody's got to do this. And so Brian and Eileen have been going a long way to put this together, so we we can expect to come back from some of this, uh, some sort of traumatic injuries. Well, um, I want for us to take uh, to leave this show understanding a bit more about neurobiology, and if you could. The two of you talk about the three sources of neural stem cells, and um, yes. So maybe let's first explain what a, a neural stem cell is. Excellent. So in your body, you can have stem cells that yield all different kinds of things. Neural stem cells are cells that are already restricted in part, so they can make the cells that belong normally, developmentally, in your brain and in your spinal cord. And there's really three cells that comprise that population oligodendrocytes, they make a kind of insulation around fibers. Neurons, they make the connections that are what yields thought and motion and all of the important things that your, your brain and spinal cord do. And astrocytes, which are, are kind of a support cell population. So those three cells, neurons, oligodendrocytes, and astrocytes, are the cells that derive from neural stem cells. But you can get to having neural stem cells in uh, a number of different ways. One is through a cell population that we talk a lot about in California, embryonic stem cells. These come from a blastocyst of a fertilized egg and are typically harvested early on within days um, from uh, embryos that are discarded at fertilization clinics. That's the only legal route. That still um, is. That's not changed. There's been so many. You've had to sort of duck and, and bounce and pull back from all kinds of executive orders that made certain tissues legal to use, but that's where you are at this point. 
Yeah, I mean, in in terms of the National Institute of Health and and the federal guidelines, of course, there's been um, a lot of back and forth on this over the last 10 years or so. But remember that California passed Proposition 71. And we'll get to that, too. Right. And um, so the the, uh, Proposition 71 funded embryonic stem cell research that's to be done within the state of California, specifically with the goal of moving therapies forward. Now, Prop 71 has expanded a bit in terms of what they will fund for cell populations. And I want to get to that funding structure in just a bit, but I want to stay with that neurobiology that um, now that I I, uh, salvaged, I hope it was salvaged, um, cord um, tissue with my second daughter's, uh, my second child's birth. And so was any of that uh, it wasn't designated for right. us to have banked in our name. So was that something useful in what you do, or if not, who does use that? So let's come back to the, the ways that you can get to neural stem yes. cells. So embryonic stem cells, you can push them to be more differentiated and get to a neural stem cell population. Um, another way that you can get an embryonic stem cell is to have a, uh, sorry, a neural stem cell is to use a tissue-derived cell. So uh, from either adults or developing children have, we all of us have neural stem cells in our brain and in our spinal cord. And if we can harvest those, those have the potential also to make these three cell populations we're talking about that might be important for neural repair. Was the fatality, um, the, the young lady uh, who was killed in a fatal car attack, uh, wreck in uh, a couple of Sundays ago, her parents absolutely salvaged everything. Would that have been something they could have also salvaged or it, it, so that's or an interesting question right so I, I know that um, uh, they I think they donated basically every organ possible and skin tissue right now no but in the future maybe um, so that could end up being a, a source of cells that would be um, useful for this kind of, um, of procedure generating neural stem cells for treatments but up till now that that is not um, has not been a source but but it's conceivably possible so the third way so embryonic cells tissue derived neural stem cells. And the third way is what's called reprogrammed cells. And so this is often referred to in the media as, or in science for that matter, is induced pluripotent cells or reprogramming, cellular reprogramming. And that's where cells um, um, that are somatic, in in other words, mature tissues like skin cells can be reprogrammed. Um, it may be that umbilical cord cells, which you're referencing um, from, uh, um, from Denali, your, your second child, um, that those cells can be reprogrammed to be pluripotent, to behave like embryonic stem cells. And then we go forward from there to generate a neural stem cell population. So those three sources are the sources we have. Cells that we, we um, take, for example, a, a skin biopsy from you or, or harvested umbilical cord cells and reprogram to any, be embryonic. Any tissue is reprogrammable. Any tissue is reprogrammable on the table right now. Maybe. Embryonic cells um, or tissue-derived cells. And we can make neural stem cells from any of those populations. And... Oh, I've had a question with that. Um, but and you are who's doing the reprogramming? Is that done for you? And then it comes to you and you work with it, or are you doing the reprogramming? Well, a uh, number of years ago, uh, Dr. Yamanaka in Japan um, is the is the guy who brought this forward and said we can take four genes, four transcription factors, and use those to treat any any somatic cell. He did it with fibroblasts, for example, and make them into pluripotent cells. This is since a technique that has spread like wildfire around uh, around the world. You can buy it as a kit 
um, currently from a biotech company. So lots and lots of people are capable of making reprogrammed cells. What the focus is now in terms of research is refining that technique so we can make cells that are more fully reprogrammed, that retain more potential, are more um, pluripotent, more, have more potential to make different cells in the, in the body. And I just want to understand, though, that's, is that something that you do or is it somebody, something that's that's processed and it, when it comes to you and you're using those. Yeah. So we really focus, in, in my lab, we really focus on neural stem cells. We have not launched down the reprogramming track. We use reprogrammed cells, but we have not been making them ourselves. Oh, okay. Brian, you were going to say? Uh, well, I was just going to add that uh, right now the research on embryonic stem cells is what taught us what might be feasible for reprogramming adult uh, skin cells. And there's still a lot of uh, understanding that needs to be uh, happen in the laboratories about when you take a skin cell and turn it into a pluripotent stem cell, is it really a truly pluripotent stem cell? Is it really the equivalent of an embryonic cell? Wow. And so there's different, it appears that there are differences if you take a skin cell from uh, the upper body versus the lower body, for example. Or, oh, you, really? or you take a sample from someone's liver and then induce that to be pluripotent. That stem cell might not be the same it has some genetic imprinting on it that that makes it slightly different. No kidding. I, that's that's so intuitive, though, that it's it was designed to do a certain job that tissue. And then or we do, come do in do more and, jobs than another tissue has exactly. jobs to do. So then we come in and reprogram it, but it retains some memory of what it once was. Okay. And so, so we're trying to understand what how how it does that, and can we completely reprogram it so those cells could be used for anything? Yeah. So. Just be clear. I mean, we're not doing that, but but people in the, the broad we right. is doing that. The and that's that was actually a really big surprise in mm -hmm. terms of science. You know, most of us learned in high school biology that you have DNA and that encodes your genes and that makes your proteins and that's what sets who you are, right? Um, and there's this actually really fascinating area that's emerged in the last five or six years of epigenetics, which says that cells and and the proteins and the RNAs that are made can be imprinted in effect by experience, in effect by having differentiated into different cell types. And that imprinting is heritable. So I can pass it on to my daughter. And it's, it's um, set in terms of the context of that cell. So reprogramming isn't just a matter, it's not the issue of reprogramming the DNA, it's reprogramming this imprinted milieu that we need to make be pluripotent again, behave like an embryonic stem cell at its most base level and right, then be I able got, to okay. take that forward. So this is, I mean, this is where basic biology and the clinical implications interact, right? We need to understand all that basic biology. We didn't even know it existed 10 years ago. Is that right? And so we need to understand that basic biology to really be effective in terms of being able to take advantage of this fantastic discovery that you can reprogram cells at all. And I just want to uh, let those know who just joined us, we're talking to Professors Eileen Anderson and Brian Cummings, neuroscientists here at UCI, talking about the stem cell research they're doing here on KUCI 88.9 FM, streaming live on KUCI.org. Well, uh, now, did you have a, an additional, some more to say about um, this, this basic biology? Uh, well, I, I don't know if you want to get into it later, so I'll bring it up now is that obviously there's a lot of ethical controversy over embryonic stem cells. Uh, this is the time to do it. This is Okay, a great so time. this is the time to do it, is that I would just say um, the people who have an ethical concern about embryonic stem cells in general don't know where they come from, and they don't realize that they're actually discarded medical waste from IVF clinics. Intro, intro, in vitro in fertilization. In vitro fertilization clinics, correct. Um, but I would also add is that it's, I look at it as 
um, 100 years ago and 50 years ago when people were appalled at the idea of blood transfusions. And oh, then interesting analogy, Brian. People were appalled. Society was up in arms about heart transplants. And so um, as science progresses and we learn more about how our biology works, how our bodies work, our understanding of what is feasible, what is natural, or what is um, possible changes over time. And I think in 50 years, we'll look back and not understand why there was such a controversy about using ES cells. Maybe a few people 50 years, maybe more people in 12 to 28 years or something like that. I hope sooner than that, yes. Yes, yes indeed. Well, that's an important analogy, and that's the kind of thing we like to bring up here on Ask a Leaders. We're moving out of the black and the white, and we'd like to move everybody into the gray, and we'd love to improve literacy, wherever, uh, whatever field. And Eileen, you were going to say, oh, okay, I want to just take your cue, uh, visual cues here in the studio. They're, they are both with me, uh, uh, Brian Cummings and Eileen Anderson here in Studio A, so it's a, it's a treat to have them here. Well, um, I want to find out then, uh, in order to get where you two are now in your research, let's just let our listeners appreciate how many grants, how much funding did it take for you two in your work to get to this point? So we can appreciate just what what's involved. If you can just sort of piece together as uh, you associate with various phases of your research um, that, you know, I don't know how many grants. I mean, it's every every cycle, every grant cycle can be uh, a, six months or a year and a half, and then a renewal of a one-year grant, renewal of a two-year grant, a renewal of a five-year grant. But if you can sort of figure out how many, how many grants it takes to find out about all this, and then how much funding, so this I, I didn't would just, just happen because you guys schmooze with donors. Right. Know. So while while Eileen's counting in her head yes. how many grants we've had in the last ten years, let's say and aver averaging um, how many millions a year those grants are, I'll just start by saying um, we don't think in those terms. We think, um, we think like we're a small business and that in, in 2010 to 2011 fiscal year, how many personnel do we have? How many um, animals do we have? Um, how many biological materials do we need to buy? And what is that total package cost to keep to sustain that for the next three to five years? So we're always looking at a three to five year timeline, hopefully, so that when you hire a postdoctoral fellow or you accept a graduate student, a graduate student takes five or six years to complete their degree. And if you don't have three or four years of funding when you first admit that graduate student, you know, you're being, um, uh, you're taking a risk and they're taking a risk of will there really be funding to keep them alive three years, four years down the pipeline. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, there aren't really, it's very hard to get a five-year grant anymore because uh, of all the, all the funding cuts at the NIH. Um, the National Institutes of Health. Thank you. Um, there's, it's very difficult to, um, to get a five-year grant, so they're typically now three- and four-year grants, which actually makes our job harder because you need to have them overlapping so that when one is ending, another one is already started so that you don't lose personnel. Otherwise, you'd have to lay people off, rehire them, and retrain them. And no data gaps, no out-of-pocket expenses of uh, unknown si size. Exactly, okay. exactly. So we are really thinking, you know, once that grant from uh, 1997 ended, um, hopefully it led to something and it, it led to a renewal or a different funding source. But once that grant is over, we're, we're well into the next thing. So we're not thinking about what was, how much did that one grant contribute. 
So, Eileen, I think you've been doing a few calculations yeah, here. Well, so we, I mean, it just helps our listeners understand, you know, sure. how concerted this effort is. Sure. I, I think, first, I would second Ryan's comments. I think that's really probably something a lot of people don't realize. Doing, doing science, having a research laboratory, in, in a lot of ways, is really operating a small business. And so this concept of being on the three- to five-year time frame and looking at what grants you can get and, and writing for those, it's all about personnel, right? We can't do the research without having very high-quality trained people that are that have this as their passion doing science is hard and particularly right now in this funding environment this career environment it's a tremendous investment by graduate students and postdocs that's that go down that path and so um you know supporting those people is is really our our goal and giving them the opportunity to both complete the studies we've already gotten funded and proposed and, and do some exploratory research so that we can follow up on the new novel ideas that's the critical thing so i think it's probably easier to put in the context of maybe an annual budget right okay. so we that's we good. probably operate um off the cuff on about a million dollar a year annual budget um direct costs to the lab and and of that in general for example there's indirect costs that come back to the University of California, which is, which is about 52%. So a million dollars a year plus another half million that comes into the university um, to support things like, you know, keeping the lights on and the air conditioning and the heat and, and, you know, building roads and all of the basic things like, you know, if you think about University of California being a, a set of small cities, basically, those things that that you would pay in property taxes. We're paying in indirect costs, in effect. Well, that's a, those are all very good analogies. I can't imagine anything we don't understand after this, in, this interview here. <laughs> so I, in, in that, say that's a million dollars of direct costs to keep the labs functioning, about 75% of that, or 750000 roughly, would be for personnel costs, and the other 250000 would be for reagents, um, cell culture supplies, animal costs, um, the hotel bill for housing the animals. So I hear they have, they have to meet specific requirements in their cages, cleanliness, and I don't know. Do they have to get recreation, or is there what? what Actually, what does what are those those requirements for the mice? Because not everybody understands that either. So the we we joke about it because in fact the requirements for housing mice are more stringent than the requirements for my, my office. Well, oh, um, they're probably on par. Well, prisons better. are overcrowded. They're better than prisons. Okay. Um, but the number of air exchanges is regulated. How many mm -hmm. times per hour does the air get turned over to keep it fresh is a higher rate than it is for the office, for the secretary, or for the professor. Um, the lighting is more tightly controlled and regulated. What kind of lighting do mice need? <laughs> well, they get the same kind of lighting that we do, basically. I think... Um, one thing to recognize, um, and probably a lot of people don't think about it, is that when, when you do research, um, it, especially if it involves animal research, most people, 99.9% .9 of people, are actually very respectful of this process if you're involved in animal research. If nothing else, from a, the, the pure reality of you want to get good data out, you need to have happy, healthy animals that are well cared Vigorous. for for that purpose. Yeah, invigorated. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, you know, I, you, one can paint this sort of dark picture of a, a research enterprise that I think really doesn't hold up to the light of the day in terms of what most people actually do in their laboratories because it's important to us that the animals are healthy, that they're well cared for, that they're well treated. 
we want to be able to take the work that we're doing and ultimately translate it into the human population. We need to know that, that the work that we're doing is going to have the best shot of doing that. And so really this is a very highly regulated level at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level in terms of animal research. And, um, and most researchers by far want to participate in that process and make sure that everything is done properly. Well, I think that's a vital bit of information about what the lab's like because I think it's easily maligned for people who have a certain uh, bias um, about what what they think is, is going on in there, a sort of a macabre kind of a sensationalized take on that. And uh, it's it makes sense that good science is going to come from, from good operations. So um, that's... I'm glad we're, we're really making a lot, taking a lot of ground. Well, I'm uh, wanting to remind listeners, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming live on KUCI.org. We're talking to professors Eileen Anderson and Brian Cummings, neuroscientists here at UCI, and here with us still, um, despite another un- August University's attempt to try to uh, appeal to uh, them relocating elsewhere. So I'm so glad, so glad we still have them here. Uh, I've made two points of that, and that's the last I'm going to say about that. So um, I, uh, we're, I think I'd like to take a, just a little uh, break here for people to think about um, what before we go into um, the, uh, some more about Prop 71 and where they're taking their clinical trials. So uh, while we do that, I'll let you reflect. We'll give you a little bit of uh, Miles Davis, who is going to uh, play a Peace Move is what it is. Welcome back to Ask a Leader today on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine with our neuroscience guest today laying literacy on all over the place so we come away better, better people. We're getting so far out of the cave now, I can't believe our success. So uh, what we'd like to do is take up now uh, the issue of Proposition 71. It was the voter-approved initiative, I believe in 2007, 2004, Time flies when you're having fun figuring out your propositions. And we, uh, I'd like to talk to them um, whether having this fund that you alluded to earlier in the interview, uh, did it expedite or did it complicate your work? Both. Okay. So, you can start with the easy or the hard part there. Uh, well, this so. This is Brian, of course. Uh, did it expedite our work? Yes. And that uh, between Eileen and I, we had three CERM, um, we call them CERM, California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. So we have three Prop 71 funded grants. So in that sense, it's expedited our work. Um, and on the other on the other shoe is that uh, CIRM is, as Eileen mentioned earlier, very translational. They want they want the project that you're working on to uh, understandably lead to a therapy for humans. So um, it ch- that that perspective changes the type of research that you do, or changes the questions that you ask. Um, and sometimes you end up skipping over some of that basic biology we mentioned before. So uh, that complicates things um, if you can combine it with other funding so that you can get the basic biology understood while working towards that therapy. That's probably the best of both worlds. But, you know, CIRM has a different set of guidelines, different reporting guidelines, and um, that 
that lay that adds a layer of complexity to it. So it, it complicates things, but I mean, it's also grant funding, so I'm not complaining. It's, it's here, it's here. Eileen? So I, I think I would add to that um, a little bit. What, what Brian said is all completely true, um, because he rarely lies. But um, there, there's an issue on a, on a broader level here, which is that National Institute of Health funding, which many of us in biomedical research derive most of our grant support from, has really been in net decline over that period. And so um, California has, with, with the initiation of Prop 71, um, been in a very fortunate situation in terms of both guiding and advancing stem cell research that might not literally otherwise have gotten done. Not just the issue with the kind of tepid approval and, and uncertainty about whether one could really do embryonic stem cell research um, or stem cell research at all based under um, um, federal guidelines. Providing a funding source for that that has been a stable funding source for that is an enormous thing. So we talked a little bit about, you know, budgeting and sort of laboratories being kind of like a small business. As in a small business, stability of funding is everything. It and it gives you efficiency. I mean, you ought to be you mining the mice instead of the checkbook. Exactly. exactly. So there, and, and that's, I mean, that is exactly it. I couldn't say more about it. So, um being able to focus on research, drive projects forward, retain personnel that are talented, encourage personnel to stay in this career and drive the research enterprise forward, those are really critical things. And CIRM has, um, Prop 71 and CIRM have contributed enormously to that in, in California over that period. Well, you, yes, Brian. So I would add some of the confusion about when did Prop 71 happen and, and what the date is, is actually understandable because Prop 71 was passed in 2004, but there was immediately a lawsuit by citizens of California saying that it was improper funding. And so there was a three-year, essentially a three-year hold um, while the courts worked out whether Prop 71 was constitutional, constitutional or not. And so funding wasn't really released until 2007. So what happened? I mean, was it earning money in a trust fund somewhere or was it? It, it was earning money. In, yeah, there is a trust fund for Prop 71 funds. And um, actually this 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 last weekend, um, I was meeting with Bob Klein at a international stem cell conference and Bob Klein was is the... See, folks, this is how lucky we are. We have these two people not on the road. They are in the studio we're, A. We're actually in Irvine simultaneously. <laughs> so uh, Bob Klein is the current president of the inter, uh, the... Uh, independent Citizens Oversight Committee of Prop 71. And he was clarifying with uh, the scientists there that while Prop 71 started in 2004, um, the funding was basically started in 2007. And so they anticipate that, in fact, funding will continue till 2017. So Prop 71 was a 10-year bond initiative. And so those bonds... Uh, I think they, they didn't get sold immediately. There was a hold on when they could be sold. And so that delay, during that delay, private citizens stepped in and they donated money. Oh, really? To get to get the stem cell work begun. Inside and outside the state? I mean, I just wonder what those kind of stakeholders are. I actually don't know. We'll have to find out. We'll have to. Uh, anonymous donors who I'm very so grateful speak. for, but I don't, know, I don't know all the details. They weren't donating cell, neuron, neural cells, but... Uh, they Bucks. were donating cash to help begin the building wow. process wow. and to help uh, hire the first people to do the administrative work and the legal work to get Prop 71 off the ground. Maybe Nancy Reagan, who'd made that, uh, you know, her own cognitive leap about the importance of that. Maybe there were people like that who knew politically uh, that it didn't cut muster, but personally they had every stake in having this uh, science be advanced. So who knows? It's just a thought that... Um, 
why why that might have happened that way, why it was available. They were, it was urgent. So anyway, so it, what happens after, after, do you think, 2017 then, when the, the bonds been expended? It has to get paid off, but uh, what, where's, uh, yeah, where's we, your we money have to pay come them from? off. So, well, two things will happen. One is that uh, a good science lab will try to diversify so that they have funding from multiple sources so that if any one source is uh, dries up, that they still have um, the operating expenses to continue. Um, that's part one. Uh, part two is that uh, the um, CIRM, California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, um, they, they have funds in the bank till 2017 from the bonds. Uh, there, sh there may be return on investment of some of those bonds, um, and there may actually be some therapies that they have funded. So by 2017, it's possible that some intellectual be, property that has intellect, value. Exactly. So there might be not that not that there is a cure for a particular disease that that could happen in in by 2017. But even if that doesn't happen, there's a lot that CIRM has enabled, including using stem cells for screening drugs uh, mm -hmm. in in a dish, for example. And the intellectual property associated with that, if if CIRM helped fund that work, they get it. The state of California and CIRM will get some of that money back. Okay, they and, own that stock. And so that may... We, we own that stock. We own that stock, exactly. As Californians, we own that stock. The question will be, will will all of that get funneled back into CIRM and allow CIRM to go for another two years, another three years, or will the the citizens of California say, no, we we invested $3 billion, and now we'd like that extra revenue to go to building more roads or building more prisons? Well, we have a public affairs host, Evan Simon, who uh, does uh, on the docket a, um, a legal show on... I, Evan, I think it's on Fridays, and so uh, I'll ask him kindly to take up what's going to happen there since it's uh, overlapping all of his uh, areas of interest. Eileen, you were going to comment, too, about this. Yeah, well, I think there there probably will be move. I, I think it's already started a bit to um, look at extending funding for Prop 71 and, and driving this forward in kind of a phase two. You know, obviously, in the current um, economic uh crisis, you know, that we have not just in California, but on a national level, that's a challenging thing to do right now. Um, it's very hard for people to look forward, I think, um, at the long-term benefits that can come from this idea of a, of a research enterprise in terms of health and disease and, and just understanding. Um, and so I think it remains to be seen whether that will really end up being a fruitful effort or not. Of course, you know, on my side of the coin where we look very long term in terms of the work that we do, I think that that long term investment is a, is a good one to make. But that's pretty challenging um, when you're facing having, you know, your kid in school with 40 kids instead of 20 kids and um, potentially losing your house. So we'll have to see how that pans out in the in the near term here. Wow. And when Brian was talking about the need for um, the, or you were saying about the net decline of funding, diversifying your financial portfolio is challenged further with with the, the pipeline sort of shrinking or, or fewer forks in the pipeline. Yeah, of course. So um, actually, Brian has a great analogy on this that that he yes. was looking at last night. So that on a national level, the the budget for the National Institutes of Health, which is where most biomedical researchers would, would derive their funding, is about twenty eight billion dollars a year. Um, but in terms of the increase of costs of doing research over time over the last 10 years and cuts to NIH, decreases in funding that have been progressive, that budget has been steadily declining. And so um, we're in a situation right now where, for example, the postdocs in my laboratory are, are 
leaving science potentially, and that's true in, in many labs across the country. Jobs aren't there to support them because state universities are cutting back, much as the crisis that University of California faces right now, which of course affects undergraduate education, but affects also graduate education and this whole research enterprise that we try and keep going on in terms of exploratory research and, and research that might be driven towards towards the clinic. And so postdocs and grad students that are that are in labs right now in, in California are not sure that they can pursue this chosen field. They're not sure that this is a career, not that they don't want it or that they don't have passion for it or they don't feel that they can help people by it, but they're not sure that they can find a job or be able to get grants to support going forward with it. Yes, Brian would add. So I would add to that that, you know, if you're a listener thinking, well, that postdoc chose science, and so if they don't have a job in their chosen field, so be it. Um, Nobody's guaranteed a job in in their favorite line of work. Um, and that's a, a that's a valid argument. Um, but what I would add to that is that, unlike a lot of things, um, scientific research, this level of scientific research, it doesn't take five years of training. It, this is a ten-year training commitment. investment. It's a ten-year commitment, so that that postdoc, now that they're a faculty somewhere else, can start a ten-year program. So now we're talking twenty years total, where maybe their work will bear fruit. But it's not just bearing fr- fruit for their career that they're now well known in, in something they've discovered. That's where the new drugs that are going to be antibiotic-resistant uh, bacteria fighters, that's where stem cells to treat brain cancer, um, ways to screen individual personalized medicine, those discoveries need to be made in 2011 so that they can actually be put to use in 2030. It's wow. a very, very long pipeline. We are now gaining the benefits of NIH investments, National Institute of Health investments, that they invested in basic research in 1970. And in 1980, mm. those things are, that's what the drug companies produce and put out based on NIH funding. It, it takes that long for this pipeline of discovery to happen. So you're not going to feel it as a citizen in 2012 that we've been reducing the funding for postdocs and laboratories. Um, but we're going to feel it in 10 years and 20 years from now when there's less, um, less possibilities there. Well, so, so, yes, I yeah, mean, so I, I would just try and add one thing onto that because, I, again, I think all of that is very true. I, probably um, many people might not realize that the basic research that's done in, in labs across the country, certainly in California, is what drives what pharmaceutical companies end up taking to market. Without that National Institute of Health and, in fact, CIRM funded enterprise, biomedical. Uh, companies, biomedical uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies would collapse in terms of their pipeline. So, you know, it's great to watch commercials on TV for Pfizer or whoever who says, we do the research that saves lives. No, they don't. And that is, there is an element of truth in that. They do the preclinical safety testing, right, that saves lives. There are very few things that have gone forward in terms of research with clinical application, in other words, made the step from bench to bedside and are treating people that did not begin with research that was funded by the National Institute of Health and done in someone's lab by a graduate student or a postdoc, for example, within the University of California. So if you break that pipeline, it's not about necessarily you know, breaking somebody's 10-year career. It's about breaking an enterprise that supports all of us in the terms most, of health and welfare. The most vital part, the base, the foundation of it, all of the pharmaceutical benefits that we have wouldn't be done with that. Well, I, I'm also thinking of, you know, as public funding dries up, it's sort of messing with your talent pool a bit, too. Absolutely. 
So, um, so it's not just about their job security, but it's be, are they coming ready to take up the assignments that you're giving them and to keep moving your, your discoveries along? So there's always been the issue of when you graduate from college, what do, what do, you, what do you do next um, if you have certain talents or certain um, dreams that you decide to be a, a, a physical medicine doctor, you decide to be a, an artist, you decide to go to graduate school. But when, when some of those avenues are even harder to do than they were, um, that does color the equation. So some of the best and brightest students who would make great graduate students, um, they uh, step back and they think, do I really want to go into this career where there's a 5% chance that I will actually get a faculty job? and yes. be able to run my own laboratory. Mm-hmm. And so some of them, you know, there's an argument that, well, then only the truly dedicated and bestest and brightest go that path, and so that's a good thing. Um, and on the other hand, um, I think that's a sad statement on our, our society and, and what we support and what we don't support. Wow. Well, that's a, that's a lot to consider. And I, I wanted to, uh, while we're making this transition from um, the, the, uh, the funding, um, we'd like to look at your actual project now, leaving the, uh, the work you've done with the mice and transitioning to your clinical trial, which will be, uh, which is already starting in Switzerland. I'd like for you um, to tell us um, why Switzerland is the location for the human trials, because uh, that's, I mean, that's a major step, folks, when you're moving up to human subjects. Why is it being conducted in Switzerland as opposed to the United States or Canada nearby? So I guess let me say a, a quick word about what this trial is. And oh, then we'll please go do. From there. Yes. So um, work that was done in, in my lab and in, in Brian's lab um, using human neural stem cells to um, treat uh, animals that receive spinal cord injuries has shown that we can exhibit some repair. We can make animals better in a, a standard model and has shown that, that the cells um, that we're using for this, the clinical lot of cells, is safe. And so um, there's a rather exhaustive number of studies over the last 10 years. It really was a 10-year pipeline to that, um, that support both what we call the efficacy and the safety of those cells. And this has all been done in collaboration with a company that's up in the Palo Alto area called Stem Cells, Inc. Stem Cells, Inc. is the sponsor for the clinical trial. So we're not running the clinical trial. Stem Cells, Inc. is the sponsor for that trial. Um, and they made a choice to go forward into Switzerland to, to run that trial. And there are a number of reasons for that. Okay. So the preclinical data that we've generated in the lab actually supports the best efficacy for these cells and the best safety profile for these cells in a delayed treatment. So in terms of spinal cord injury, we would call that subacute to chronic. So in animals, that's a nine, between nine days and two months after injury. In people, that roughly translates, and what the clinical trial is organized around, is from three months to 12 months post-injury. Mm-hmm. Now that's okay. a really important period in terms of spinal cord injury because there are no things in clinical trial for that more chronic period. This is really an uh, what we call in, in the field an unmet medical need. So there is nothing that we can use, no drug, no compound, no antibody, no other cell type that's being used to treat um, patients in a clinical setting in that period. Why is that important? Well, as you alluded to at the beginning of the show, there's about 1.3 million Americans alone per year that receive spinal cord injuries. Um, and are living receive with, it sounds like they're offered well, on a platter yes. that, yeah. that there you go maimed. with you to like a or b um <laughs> uh i'll take dryness of mouth and and um 
uh, are living are living with these. I'm sorry, that are living with these injuries in in the in the U.S. And so, it's an enormous thing to be able to think about treating that more chronically injured population. Um, from a clinical trial perspective, there's a number of things that are important about recruiting patients. So. You can imagine if you might have received a spinal cord injury, we have some ethical concerns in terms of um, thinking about how do we go and ask for consent, especially with stem cells, right? Stem cells are an enormous thing in the press. Um, there's a tremendous amount of hope that has been generated behind them. And it's very tough, I think, to go in and say, um, we're doing a safety trial. So a safety trial Because you means have to disclose. We, I mean, we need to disclose. We absolutely. Don't, we don't know that these cells will work in the clinic. We don't know that they're <coughs> gonna work for people. We wouldn't be testing them if we didn't have data in our animal models that suggested that they're promising. But it's a big leap, as many people who've done clinical, clinical trials for all sorts of things over the years can mm -hmm. tell you, for stroke, for traumatic brain injury, for heart disease, for everything. Lots of things that work in animal studies don't pan out in the clinical setting. And so what we have to do as the first step is to determine, is it safe in people. We've shown that it's safe in animals. Is it safe in people? And so really what we go forward and do in these trials is an experiment. And so we need to talk to people as a part of the ethical disclosure and say, this is an experiment. And so we would like you to help that. The research that we're doing may not benefit you. It may only benefit people five years or 10 years from now. It may not benefit you. But I think it's really hard to take that information if you were the person who's just been in an accident and can't move your arms or legs. You're still processing the loss. You're still trying to figure out, gosh, how and, much do I have me to do this rehab? It's so and, hard. And the, you know, everyone will have heard about the, the hoopla of stem cells and, and the potential promise of these things. So, so consenting people for trial in a knowledgeable way early on after injury is a little bit controversial in the field because there are real concerns with whether you can make a rational decision four days after your injury or a week after it's your like injury. It's like the vulnerable population exactly. issue that address. So in addition to the fact that the cells that we're working with have shown efficacy in this more delayed paradigm, you know, one hope is that the patient population that we recruit will be in just a, a little bit of a better place to be able to make that decision. Is this something that they want to participate in, this experiment? Um, in addition to that, um, it's a tricky population in the sense that um, in the U.S., most people who uh, may have received a spinal cord injury at most have about eight weeks of inpatient rehab. That's it. That's it. Welcome to so America. Welcome, welcome to, to healthcare America. in America. And uh, rehab is often very much focused on activities of daily living. So making the most of whatever that person has retained in terms of function, learning to be as independent as possible. And in Switzerland, we have a situation where inpatient treatment is much longer. And so there's an, a much greater focus on rehab. It's called so, a national health care plan yes. in Switzerland. So we have the potential to work with a patient population um, that not only is a little bit delayed, perhaps uh, more capable of making informed consent, but actually might be in a hospital setting being regularly seen by the clinicians that we need to talk to and we need to, to be able to run this trial. And so in a lot of ways, Switzerland um, had a particular set of advantages for this clinical therapy because of this timeline, because of patient consent, because of the fact that inpatient rehab is just plain longer there than it is here. Okay, that's why. That's why. And uh, now you've, you've made lots of trips, though, but are you, are you physically going to be 
uh, in, right there in Switzerland from so no, over so the, the period? A, or is um, it just stem cells, inks very, people? Very well-respected um, clinician, Armin Kurtz, who is the director of the Spinal Cord Injury Program at University of Zurich, who is uh, the PI. He's the principal investigator who's running the stem cell ink trial at University of Zurich at Balgrist Hospital. I just want to remind listeners, you're listening to KUCI 88.8 FM and Irvine, streaming live on KUCI.org. It's our pleasure uh, having this full hour uh, with Professors Eileen Anderson and Brian Cummings uh, to talk about their neuroscience transitioning from out of the mouse hotels by necessity. They have to be nice, nice, tidy little living residences for those mice and into um, the Swiss... um, population where they've they have already gone to trial you said nobody's been consented yet but they're right. in the process of being recruited starting was it with so we can have a little timeline appreciation here they st- when did the recruiting begin for these subjects recruiting began at the beginning of this year of, of this 2011 year. so they're they're in process recruiting the first patient has not been transplanted yet okay okay not transplant not consented but they have there's somebody's consent but not transplanted yet so I would we're we're the basic scientists yeah. here at UC Irvine and Stem Cell Inc. in Palo Alto is running the trial with Dr. Armin Kurt right. in Switzerland and that due to confidentiality and, and patient agreements, we're not privy to what oh, okay. what all those details so are. We it's don't not, ask you that stuff. Yeah, it's not our trial. Oh, okay. Ah that's important to we, know. We that. we enabled it, but it's you know, we're we're not running it. So you have also talked about um oh what kinds of patients are you looking for, and what's what's a good candidate? What's a good age? What's a, what's a what kind of injuries um, are you anticipating or looking right. at? So all um, trials have what's called exclusion criteria. What that means is that you know again we're doing it as, as an experiment, it's a human experiment. We're doing a, a safety trial, and so the clinical trial that runs should be um, organized uh, for approval as closely as possible to the preclinical animal data that you have. So, for example, we know that these cells benefit in thoracic injury, so injury that's in the chest region. So, of course, okay. the clinical trial corresponds to that. If you have a higher injury or a lower injury, you're excluded. For example, okay. Um, so that's an example of an exclusion criteria. So um, the patients that are candidates are mid-thoracic injury between 18 and 65 years of age. Um, you want to see them um, all? No penetrating injuries, just a, a, a similar to the most common kind of human spinal cord injury, but a contusion injury, which is the animal model that these were derived on, um, that sort of thing. So Now, that's a little technical. No penetrating is like not a gunshot. Not a gunshot, spine, not a stab But wound. is it a exactly. stroke? It's not a stroke, but a, um, a snap from like, well, was Christopher Reeves, would he have so been? It's called a bruise, a contusion, literally what you would think about having on your arm. So... Um, which is the kind of spinal cord injury that is most common in, in car accidents, in diving accidents, in, in all those sorts of things. Like, was Christopher Reeves, would he have qualified for this yep. trial? Uh, well, well, no, because he was higher up. His, his oh, that's right. injury was at the neck level, at the cervical level. So he could okay. not have qualified for this trial in reality. So we are working on a cervical model that is in the neck region, and we have what we call efficacy again, meaning the cells that we're using improve the clinical outcome in mice for a cervical injury as well. But that's another multi-year project to get the basic science of how that works, what cell dose to use, what the timing range is. All those studies are currently ongoing, and we will hope to do a clinical trial later. But this first Swiss trial is restricted just to people with a thoracic or a 
chest level injury and paralysis in the in their legs only. Yep, that's now, right. And we're actually in terms of the the cervical, the higher injuries, hoping to follow the same path that we did for thoracic for chest level injuries because for us we've been particularly focused on trying to get into the patient population that that is chronic at, at the end of the day. So the the million people that are out there in the United States that don't have options to any other therapies. And so we hope we're gonna follow that same path um, and perhaps even extend it for cervical injuries. So that's really actually a very big focus of the lab right now, trying to get the grant support together that to be able to do that. That will require the assistance of CIRM, for example. Exactly. CIRM and uh, other foundations and all. Um, but I, I, I'm just trying to figure out, is the cervical domain is that a lot lot more complicated than the thoracic much more complicated yes. so because it's complicated you know there are different a elements of that one is the animal models are obviously more complicated um, but two from a clinical perspective for patients there are additional uh, complications of a cervical injury that don't apply to thoracic so people with injuries above thoracic level five and higher um, develop, um, for example, commonly a condition called auto autonomic dysreflexia, which can be life-threatening. And so that's something um, in terms of, you know, the safety domain and, and efficacy domain that we need to look at uh, very closely in terms of treating with stem cells. Um, because it's not just about, spinal cord injury is not just about regaining movement, which is the easy thing to think about, right? You see someone in a wheelchair and you realize that they can't move their legs voluntarily. That's part of the equation, but there are a lot of other um, sequelae, downstream effects of um, spinal cord injury that are really critical. Loss of bladder function, loss of bowel control, loss of sexual function, loss of the ability to regulate your own thermostat, regulate your own temperature, that can really be life-threatening. And um, these are things that we need to look at. The, the incidence increases the higher the level of injury is, and we need to look at very carefully in terms of the safety of cells and the potential for cells to be able to treat that. I, mean, I just want to back up. So that function, that's in a thoracic domain, or you said that's in the cervical? Or okay. So if you have a all lesion those functions. above... That's the five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's above thoracic all level that's five, happening. which is pretty high. Yeah. Wow, even then, the monitoring, regulating your heat, you could yeah. have hypothermia in the middle of somebody's, uh, you know... Uh, well, regular room temperature or something. Exactly. Or um, another consequence is that it's very hard to regulate blood pressure. And so people's blood pressure can skyrocket, become hypertensive, and they can have strokes as a secondary effect. I mean, I, I've met individuals um, with spinal cord injuries at the cervical level who have had these things. So someone who was completely functioning except for their motor control, right, right, right who right. had um, a bladder infection, didn't know, trouble with bladder control as a result of the spinal cord injury, which triggered autonomic dysreflexia, and they had a stroke as a consequence. And so now on top of being spinal cord injured, there's a whole set of secondary consequences that have further disabled them. This is a, it's a, it's a devastating injury, these injuries. And um, it isn't high. just about regaining voluntary motor control. It, it's a devastating injury. We need to look at treating all aspects of it. And you're on it, and you... I hope that this one hour didn't take away from your productivity today. But <laughs> it, but it we, did. But we'll, we'll, <laughs> we're glad to be we here. will go back to <laughs> work. Own up to, but we're hoping maybe we're drumming up more uh, literacy and more support for what you're doing, so people have no qualms about that, and they talk to everybody. And that's what we try to do. With well, uh, that's our takeaway message for for this program, folks. Well, I uh, we really do have to take this program and end it now. And I I want to thank both Brian Cummings and Eileen Anderson. 
neuroscience professors here at UCI for being on the show today, posting us on these breakthroughs, slogging away at counting every little bar that the mice run over. That, I mean, I just don't know what that's like, that kind of tale. And uh, jumping through all these funding hoops and so much more. It's been a pleasure having the two of you as my guests today. Thanks for having us, and thanks for a great show. Oh, well... You made it the show that it is, and I'm so glad and so grateful to both of you. I want to thank everybody listening to uh, Ask a Leader today. We're going to hopefully get this up on a podcast sooner than uh, you think, and we will uh, turn the show over, uh, the time, uh, the pro radio over to George Rosales, and we all wonder what, what George's stem cells are up to today. So uh, stay tuned. Next week we're going to have... Retiring IUSD Superintendent Gwen Gross, uh, taking stock of her career, especially where she completed it here in uh, Irvine. So stay tuned. We'll see you next week. Oh dear, what shall I do? For every year brings something new. Cyrus Field has won renown for stretching out.